you have not yet answered the question. Give us a simple answer. Will you recant or will you not? You ask for a simple answer. Here it is. Unless you can convince me by scripture and not by popes or councils who have often contradicted each other, unless I am so convinced that I am wrong, I am bound to my beliefs by the texts of the Bible. My conscience is captive to the word of God. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Therefore, I cannot and I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Before we begin, thank you for being a part of Christ of the Cure. Christ of the Cure is subscriber supported. Without these patrons, there would be no season four, there'd be no resources, and so on and so forth. So if you want to prayerfully consider joining the support team, go to patreon.com forward slash Christ is the cure. In May of 2024, in the Dallas Fort Worth area, there will be a conference on the Reformation. It's the Reformation Conference, a regional conference by G3. And if you are a listener of Christ is the Cure, you will get a discount on tickets. I will have that code for you. Hopefully by the end of the month, as we wanted to have the promotion correspond with the Reformation series, because it's a Reformation conference and I'm doing Reformation material. So keep an eye out for that discount. Um, if you want, you can go to ChristTheCure.org, find the place to subscribe with your email, and I will make sure to put up a post so you'll get notified by email when that code is available, and you'll be able to get a discount on the Reformation conference. But let's just jump right into it. It is October and we are talking about Halloween. And I say it like that because I've been asked to do this topic more times than I can count. And really, this October is pretty interesting as Catholics gather for an in-house dialogue that is filled with much tension. And this is called the Synod of Synodality. And if you feel like going down that rabbit hole, you can go look up, you know, what are the tensions with this synod and things of that nature. But... As Protestants, we really recognize this month as Reformation Month, where we reflect on the Protestant heritage and celebrate the departure from medieval superstitions and legalistic bondage. And if you don't know, this is associated with the Reformation because on October 31st of 1517, Martin Luther put up his famous 95 Thesis and snowballed the German Reformation, um, while over in Switzerland you had Zwingli handling the Swiss Reformation, and so there's a lot of moving parts. We've talked a little bit about that in the Beyond Luther series, but we're not going to get into all that right here. So we have this Catholic Synod going on, we have Reformation Month going on, but the big thing is that during this month, Christians and non-Christians alike start posting and debating about Halloween, and that's what we are going to be talking about today, because I have been asked to cover the subject more than a thousand times by now, and I generally avoided it, but I thought this year, why not? And to be honest, it's been kind of interesting because most people expected me to have already covered this because of my book, Holidays and the Feast, where I talk about Christmas and Easter not being pagan. But Halloween is much more complex, and I think that will demonstrate that here. 
there are four threads being pulled on on the subject of Halloween. Church history, American history, ancient pagan history, and neo-pagan history. So while Christmas and Easter had become bogged down in American cultural elements, which really began with the Germans and uh, the commercialization of these two Christian holidays, Halloween has that, but more, especially in terms of all of its baggage. So that said, in honor of Reformation Month and the request for me to open up the new season of the podcast with Reformation specials, we will begin with an episode on Halloween. If you are a patron, you will receive an EPUB or PDF of all of these notes um, whenever I polish it up for you guys, and you should get that within the next couple of weeks. So the approach for this episode will be a little bit different than what you may expect. In fact, you may find that it takes several turns that you did not expect. And the reason why I make such a bold claim is because every time I've looked into Halloween, I have not seen this approach once we get past Samhain. Um, so if you bear with me, hopefully everything will tie together coherently. And if you have looming questions about what does this have to do with Reformation Month, it will become more apparent. There's a direct tie between Halloween and the Reformation. So one thing is important to note before we begin, and it's a crucial, vital caution, vital, important, crucial. Do not assume that you know my conclusions until we reach them. If you bother trying to guess my conclusions, you may find yourself confused when the end of the episode rolls around. The structure of the episodes will be primarily chronological, but we will begin with a discussion on Samhain. And if you don't know what Samhain is, it's the, the Celtic-Irish festival spelled out as S-A-M-H-A-I-N, but pronounced Samhain. Phonetically, there's a couple other ways that it's been uh, spelled out, such as S-O-W as in cow, and then win, W-E-N. But I think of it as S-A-U-W-E-N, Samhain. So this is the Irish Celtic cult that Halloween is said to be based on. And after we discuss Samhain, we will then travel back to the second century and then progress to the Reformation. Okay, so we're talking about Samhain first, then we're going back to the early church, then we'll get to the Reformation, and then we will move into contemporary Halloween, including its elements such as trick-or-treating and the jack-o'-lanterns. And then we will get into concluding discussions, thoughts, and applications. So let's just jump into our discussion on Samhain. So when we're talking about Halloween or looking up Halloween, its origins are often linked to this ancient Irish Celtic festival known as Samhain. The descriptions of Halloween are summarized as this. Halloween is a Christianized or baptized pagan festival of Samhain, and all of its practices are clearly satanic or pagan and trace back to the background of the Celtic tribes of Scotland and Ireland, specifically Ireland. Since we have yet to define or explain All Saints Day, which we will get to in the next section, I'm going to provide a brief summary. All Saints Day was a commemoration of all the saints and martyrs in the church. It was a single observance for exactly that, all of the saints. It would be originally held in May, and then it would be moved to November. Additionally, the night before All Saints Day was known as All Saints Eve or Halloween. And that basic information is going to be important as we move into the discussion on Samhain and the narrative around Halloween and what the historical record shows. So what is the narrative? The serious scholarship on the subject of Samhain is actually scarce, and much of the 
literature that we read on it in our contemporary context of, you know, online and articles and history.org and stuff like that is based off of legend and folklore. This makes finding information really difficult beyond what we see already. It's presupposed across the board that Samhain is connected to Halloween, meaning that fact-checking is quite hard. It is a commonplace claim now that is virtually universally accepted, and many objections to Halloween are made on the basis of these connections. These connections are so universal that if conclusive literature comes out saying that there is zero connection, without a doubt, 100% certainty, that universal narrative will probably still linger on because of how long and how universally propagated it was. And I'm saying that to say it's going to be an uphill battle if you ever want to challenge these claims. Um, still, one of the key historians worth looking at on the subject is Ronald Hutton. He wrote a book entitled Stations of the Sun, A History of the Ritual Year in Britain. And as you can guess, in this book, he traces the ritual and religious history in Britain. He surveys the literature, he examines and weighs it, and then he draws his own conclusions. He begins his exposition on the Irish Celtic observation by summarizing the general narrative that typically surrounds the Samhain Halloween development, okay? And he does this by opening up his discussion with a quote from a leaflet issued by the British Pagan Federation for Halloween in 1993. First, the leaflet, I don't know why that's funny. Anyway, first, the leaflet describes that the Celts viewed Samhain as the time when the gates between this world and the next world were open, right? That rift between the living and the dead was opened. And so the implications were that this was a time of communications with the spirits of the dead. Further, the Celts would also call upon their past relatives to help them by providing wisdom or warnings for the upcoming year. According to this document, quote, when Christianity became established in Britain, the pagan goddesses and gods were said to have fallen under the rule of all the saints. All Hallows Day, now known as All Saints Day, celebrates this takeover. The old pagan traditions, however, were not eradicated and lived on in the guise of Halloween, the eve of All Hallows Day, or All Saints Day. It should not be surprising that Christianity should seek to suppress the pagan celebrations of Samhain. To the new religion, the deities of the old faith seem like evil spirits, the natural uncanniness of Samhain was interpreted as a time of danger for the Christian soul. The spirits of the dead and the spirits of the other world were confused with the evil demons of the Christian religion. Christianity not only suppressed the old Celtic celebrations, but replaced them with Christian festivals. If we look closely, it is not difficult to see that All Souls Day is a continuation in a Christian form of the older pagan practices of Samhain. This is a time when, on the continent, Catholic families will visit family tombs, say prayers for the dead, light candles, and even picnic at the gravesite, just as their pagan ancestors did. They are communing with the dead, end quote. So for clarity, the claim being expressed is that All Saints Day, that is November 1st, was a replacement of the pagan celebration of Samhain, which was also on November 1st, for the sake of showing that saints had prevailed over pagan deities, and by extension, Halloween, the night before of All Saints Day is just a Christianized Samhain preparation. So that's the narrative of this leaflet. However, on this leaflet, Hutton replies that some of the claims are true, and most may be true. In his work, he examines the literature on the subject, and he reaches his conclusions that most of the conceptions provided or known today are actually folklore that are difficult to substantiate. Further, it is only now that meaningful scholarship on the Celts began to look at the history beyond taking folklore at face value. 
We'll go more into depth on All Saints Day later. Right now, we're going to focus on Samhain. So when it comes to the calendar of the Celts, Hutton states, there is therefore absolutely no firm evidence in the written record that the year opened on the 1st of November in either early Ireland or early Wales. He actually concludes that there's a great deal of Welsh material to refute this idea. He further points out that the observance of Samhain was not normative and that, quote, it may therefore be suggested as a proposal worthy of testing that the notion of a distinctive Celtic ritual year with four festivals at the quarter days and at the opening of Samhain is a scholastic construction of the 18th and 19th centuries, which should now be considered revised or even abandoned altogether. To summarize on this point, the argument that Halloween replaced Samhain, the new year of the Celts, where the rift between the living and the dead was open and people communicate with the spirits and it's a copy-paste kind of thing, should be debated minimally or abandoned altogether given the lack of conclusive evidence and evidence to the contrary in Welsh literature. Further, he says, quote, the medieval records furnish no evidence that 1st of November was a major pan-Celtic festival and there were none of the religious ceremonies even when it was observed. There were being added in brackets for clarity by myself. In addition to this lack of evidence about a 1st of November religious observance or New Year observance, there is little evidence to suggest that Samhain was even a celebration of the dead. Hutton examined one of the chief scholars who popularized this theory, and it remains a theory based on inference, not documentation. In fact, the scholar in question admitted as much that there is no documentation proving Samhain was a pre-existing festival taken over by Christians. Instead, he reasoned to this theory through these ideas. A, that the church had taken over other pagan holy days, B, that many cultures had annual ceremonies to honor the dead, and C, that November 1st was the Celtic New Year, an assumption that was left unproven. In fact, this same scholar suggested that the Celtic New Year became the basis for the church's change of a May date for All Saints Day to the now-existing November date. Of course, this one theory in itself would actually discredit the mainline position that All Saints Day was created for the sake of replacing Samhain, which is assumed to have been in November on the 1st. In other words, this particular scholar who popularized that theory gives All Saints Day a pre-existent status, but in May. Hutton summarizes some of the data we have regarding All Saints Day by stating, quote, By the mid-4th century, Christians in the Mediterranean world were keeping a feast in honor of all of those who had been martyred underneath the pagan emperors, end quote. So from here, he notes that the evidence points to the following that initially Christians in the Mediterranean commemorated Halloween in May, but over time, different regions adopted varying dates and practices, and Rome opted for a day of observance in May and officially endorsed it in AD 609. However, by the 9th century, churches in England and Germany had shifted the celebration to November, a practice already embraced by significant figures like Charlemagne. Pope Gregory supported this November date, indicating its origin in Northern Europe, rather than Celtic traditions, contrary to previous beliefs. Furthermore, Ireland actually stood out as an exception regarding their celebration of All Saints Day. Ireland actually celebrated the Feast of All Saints Day in April, specifically on the 20th. Regardless of whether the origin of the date was Germanic or Frankish, the fact that Ireland celebrated the Feast of All Saints Day in April poses a challenge to the idea that Halloween is simply a repackaged version of an ancient Celtic festival of Samhain 
allegedly observed on November 1st. In other words, if Halloween were directly derived from Samhain or a replacement of it, one would expect that Ireland would have continued the Samhain traditions in November. However, the Irish celebration of the feast in April indicates that the November date for Halloween had a different origin. It was not directly tied to Samhain. So when it comes to the rituals of Samhain, we actually know little aside from some folklore, but mostly modern folklore. In fact, the one thing that is clear about Samhain is the ambiguity of the festival, its timing, its rituals, or whether it was actually even a religious observance at all. The evidence is scant, and while there are new modern theories around Samhain, but these are just now beginning to take off off the ground as scholarship becomes more serious about the Celtic history by historical records. This is to say that historical data makes the claim of a Halloween formation solely around Samhain shaky at best when we eliminate the folklore literature. In addition to this, there is no historical evidence to support the notion that modern alliterations of Halloween came from Samhain. There is simply no evidence for the various elements of our contemporary setting being connected to Samhain. The closest could be the jack-o'-lantern, but not because of Samhain, but instead of folklore in the British Isles. So evidence regarding the elements of Samhain yield no jack-o'-lanterns, witches, ghosts, human sacrifices, and so forth. Instead, most of the customs associated with our modern celebration of Halloween are young, dating to the past 500 years. One of the links that could be argued is that of bonfires, which, if we're honest, are a pretty weak argument from cheap paganism, which I spoke about in my episode on Easter and in my book underneath the same title, Cheap Paganism. The notion of cheap paganism is simply the idea that if the pagans used it or observed particular times, then it must be inherently pagan always, even at the expense of actual paganism, that is, i.e. posture towards a particular pagan deity. So if we're looking at evidence, common items and themes across the globe and cultures cannot be attributed to paganism, such as winter being a sign of the dark and death given how the season affects the earth, for example. It's just a common parallel within culture. A bonfire in particular is difficult to argue as being exclusively pagan, just as much as the Yule log in a fireplace is. Creating fire and burning logs is hardly inherently pagan. So a last possible connection is the connection of Samhain being a festival of the dead, but that is a debate amongst the scholars. If Samhain is indeed a festival of the dead, and shared practices honoring the dead could really be made. The difficulty is that historians and others have noted that honoring the dead, even annually, as a practice, has been a practice in nearly every culture in every century. Nevertheless, the only clear details about Samhain center around the ambiguity of the festival, again, its timing and its rituals, and whether or not it was actually religious observance. The certainty around the festival actually comes from folklore and contemporary new or neo-pagans who do indeed take this folklore to heart and observe it as a modern adaptation of Samhain. Now, Hutton's work on the subject can ultimately summarize as such. The evidence appears to be complex and uncertain. And this is despite the certainty that we have seen. From my observation, the assertion that Halloween is just Samhain wearing a new hat is difficult to substantiate. That said, it really is an uphill battle to even suggest this. And until Hutton's work and subsequent literature comes out, it's just the way it is. And I'm not saying we can't try to correct that, but that's just the way it is. Whenever you Google Halloween, you will see Samhain. And now I want to pause and remind you, do not try to draw my conclusions from this section. That's all I'll say, and now let's move on to talking about All Hallows' Eve in church history. So early in church history, Christians who were martyred were 
revered, and remembered. And the term martyr comes from the Greek term martyria, which is often translated as witness in your New Testament. This term came to denote exclusively the believer who would suffer and die for the faith underneath persecution. Now, pretty early on, miraculous tales around the martyrs began, and one of the earliest pieces of literature detailing a martyrdom outside of the New Testament is found in the collection known as the Apostolic Fathers. The letter is called The Martyrdom of Polycarp, and it details exactly that, the martyrdom of the early Christian bearing that name, Polycarp. There's a summary you can find of Polycarp and this letter in the Apostolic Fathers PDF I prepped on my website. It will be included in the notes below, in the description, and on the website. But ultimately, Polycarp was a famous leader, thought to be a disciple of John, and he was arrested, betrayed, and burned at the stake according to the martyrdom of Polycarp. The takeaway here is that the martyrs gained significant reverence very early on, and this would be the development of the cult of martyrs, which would lead to the cult of the saints. It is important to say that when I mention cult in this context, it does not carry the necessary negative coloration that we are typically used to. Within this context, it just means that there is a sense of veneration or devotion around a particular thing, such as a figure or object. So if you want to look up veneration of the saints, you're typically dealing with the cult of the saints, right? A cult in this context is an organized homage paid to a particular aspect of a broader theological tradition. So when we hear Catholics talk about the cult of the saints, they're referring to the practice and devotion towards the saints within Catholicism. Now, with the church's growing attention on the martyrs, we originally see no difference between the rites, that is the ceremonies or practices of the cult of the martyrs, and the non-Christian cult of the dead. The cult of the dead should be summarized here. I'm going to use the Holman Bible, excuse me, Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary to provide that summarization. Quote, much like ancestor worship, the cult of the dead involves adoration of the deceased. The cult of the dead goes a step beyond adoration, however, seeking to maintain or manage a relationship with the dead. The cult of the dead involves the belief that certain departed spirits must be fed or honored and that they can be channels of information with the spiritual world. While ancestor worship was not common among Israel and her neighbors, the cult of the dead was widely practiced. The belief in the afterlife was apparently universal in the ancient Near East. The provision of food, drink, and artifacts within tombs is an indication of the belief that the departed spirits would have need of such things. Though Israel was forbidden to practice the cult of the dead, she often departed from God's injunctions and engaged in the worship of pagan deities. Wayward Israelites were also guilty of practicing the cult of the dead in 1 Samuel 28, and Israel was specifically warned not to offer to the dead in Deuteronomy 26.14. God warned them through the prophets not to consult the dead in an effort to learn of the future in Isaiah 8.19 and 65.4, and such acts were considered by the prophets to be dangerously at odds with God's will." End quote. So in addition to this cult of the martyrs, the cult of the relics developed. And that, of course, is intrinsically tied with the cult of the martyrs. Relics were remains of these martyrs, such as bones, clothing, instruments of torture, etc. And it cannot be detached from the cult of the martyrs as it developed. The collection of relics began very early on and continues to this day within Catholicism and the Orthodox tradition. Relics are seen as possessing a particular property that sanctify a particular space and can even produce miracles. And so the collection of relics and customs concerning the cult of the dead were ancient, and when Christians recognized the significance of martyrdom, some syncretism occurred. Saxer and Hyde point out, quote, from the cult of the dead, any traditional practices not incompatible with the Christian faith were transferred to the cult of the martyrs. The same thing happened with regard to specifically Christian customs and the cult of the dead, 
born of the desire to correct and complement pagan customs. They go on to provide a summary of the evidence for this claim, but conclude that the data points out that, quote, in the cult of the martyrs, all the previous funerary customs that could be kept continue to be used, end quote. They explain that the most clear-cut example of the connection is found in the custom of libations or drink offerings and funeral banquets on behalf of the dead. Robert Kinney on libation states, quote, The pouring of libations is an ancient, complex, and varied ceremonial act. Usually it took the form of pouring a measure of wine or olive oil, honey, or some other liquid in commemoration or remembrance of something or as an offering to a deity. Particular vessels were often set aside for ceremonial use in distinction from common vessels. And while some rites required the celebrant to pour the liquid on the ground, others required pouring the liquid on an altar, usually as an offering to a god. Customs around the pouring of libations are remarkably similar across cultures and time. So to summarize, a libation, in short, is most often an act of pouring liquid as an offering or sacrifice to a deity. And this term is actually used in some translations of the Old Testament, such as the New English translation of the Septuagint. That is, offering drink offerings to Yahweh. When it comes to the context of libation in the non-Christian pagan world, there were libations to either appease people that they thought may haunt them, or honor those who they loved, or provide sustenance for them beyond the grave. And that's from Bittler's The Ancient Roman Libation Tubes That Connected the Living to the Dead. Tubes were directly built into the grave so that these offerings could be given directly instead of soaking through the ground. In various observances and holidays, individuals would offer wine and foods to the deceased, though not every grave would have a tube. According to Bittler, Christians eventually put an end to libations. They considered the practice to be pagan, but they did not do this immediately, end quote. And what we will find is that when Christians started telling people to not do this, this still persisted through the 11th century, where archaeologists found a libation tube that went to a priest's burial remains, and you can see this in Biller's article. Now, the cult of the martyrs would eventually diverge in taking on a particularly communal aspect and liturgical form. So it would add these elements and tweak the cult of the dead to where there was a more communal aspect, that is the communion of the saints, and liturgy, that is an order of worship. In the 3rd century, the Christian writer Cyprian would speak about Christians celebrating communion, or the supper, or the Eucharist, on behalf of the martyrs. The supper would be taken on the anniversary of the martyrs and would contain within it an intercession on behalf of the martyrs. That would, They would pray for the martyrs. In the 4th century, however, there were major changes in the cult of the martyrs, especially in that the church would no longer view themselves as praying for the martyrs, but instead these saints would pray for them, which led to a stronger devotion to invoking or calling on the saints. Historian Robert Bartlett describes more of the changes as follows, quote, Alongside the new relationship with the state, new patterns and habits of worship developed, which it is possible to sum up simply by saying that in this period Christianity became a religion. The Middle Eastern world in which Jesus and his followers lived had a clear and distinct concept of religion. That is, the temple cults in which ritual specialists, the priests, represented the people and sought divine favor through sacrifice. In its origin, Christianity was a radical revivalist cult that rejected most of these things. By the end of the 4th century, they were back again. Holy buildings, priestly rituals, and the language of sacrifice and mystery. A priest of Baal or Isis or Yahweh would certainly have recognized what kind of thing Christianity of the late 4th century was. It was as part of this immense transformation that the cult of the saints came into new prominence and new assured forms. And that's in his work, 
Why can the dead do such great things? Saints and worshipers from the martyrs to the reformation by Princeton University Press. Like I said, these will be in the notes. So some of these changes included the venues for the saints. They moved from these underground tombs or catacombs to shrines erected in their honor, along with a new means of venerating them. This new means of veneration would actually include regular rituals to honor the martyr, bring an offering, and of course, expect help for them in exchange. The exchange that took place was that of a patron-client relationship. And this relationship included offerings, intercession, intermediaries, and at times, a patron saint that one would dedicate themselves to. Bartlett says, quote, The saint was a powerful, if usually invisible, patron, an invisible friend who could provide direct help and also access to yet higher levels in the cosmic hierarchy. Any society that knew the patron-client relationship of the ancient world or the significance of lordship in the medieval one would find the dynamics of invocation and the saintly intercession self-explanatory. Saints were the intercessors. They were the intermediaries between the needy human beings and the almighty. The world of patronage and favors extended beyond this earthly life. A telling simile was that having a saint on your side was a bit like winning over the bodyguard of a great king to give you access to him. And just as suppliants sought out powerful helpers, so too the honor of those helpers was increased by the requests made to them. End quote. So invocation of the saints that is calling on the saints it was a direct address given to a saint. And many of these invocations were done by means of a pilgrimage to the saint's shrine, especially if a relic was present. Quote, the worshipers thus had duties to respect and revere the saint, to bring offerings, to participate in celebration on feast days, but the saint had duties too. He or she was expected to provide help, and it was unquestionably the worshippers' right to reproach saints who failed to help. End quote. So these pilgrimages would be heightened dramatically and relics multiply and critiqued heavily by the time of the Protestant Reformation as the reformers saw the poor bleeding money for what mimicked a pagan pantheon of deities that made the clergy wealthy. But in the 4th century, another important development occurred. The previous funerary banquets that had been adopted from the cult of the dead were beginning to be suppressed, beginning with Ambrose of Milan and Augustine of Hippo following suit. Both Ambrose and Augustine found the common banquets to be too pagan and needing to be replaced. Thus, instead of this being a private ritual where one brought an offering to a martyr, the focus would shift on commemoration via a partaking in the Lord's Supper in the liturgy that is at a dedicated service. Slowly, the banquets would eventually be replaced by prayer vigils, with feast days being a time for taking the supper in honor of a martyr. It would only be after the 4th century that non-martyr Christians would begin to be recognized as objects of honor and incorporated into this cult. This incorporation of non-martyrs would lead to a more broad cult, that is the cult of the saints, and all that came with them, that is holy days, relics, invocation, patrons, orders, and so forth. Bartlett notes that the celebration of the saints' holy days became a central part of the church ritual. He notes that this is a fact of the liturgy where veneration was moved into the church in forms of public worship. Annual meetings for commemorating the martyrs began to form in various regions in the 4th century, and they would be made official in the 7th century, namely in AD 609. The first officialization of All Saints Day was put into place by the Bishop of Rome, who would convert the Pantheon in Rome to a church, and he dedicated it to Mary. So the day was established in order to combine and consolidate the numerous observations of the saints into a universal single day, particularly on May 13th. This would ensure that every saint could be accounted for in the church's calendar, and this would be an obligatory observation. 
It's important to note that this did not eliminate the other saints' day from the church calendar. Later on in the 9th century, the Bishop of Rome would change the date to November 1st, and the earliest documentation recording this is in the 8th century calendar of York, along with the correspondence between leadership in England, urging for the change in observance. And so the annual observance would be held on November 1st in the West, but it would take some time to be observed in the East, and even then, because of the difference between the calendars, its date technically differs between the Catholics and the Orthodox Church today, but both observe it. Bartlett on this feast day says, quote, What is clear is that from the 9th century, the Feast of All Saints on the 1st of November was an important ceremony in the Western Church. It gave worshipers the opportunity to make up for any lack in the respect they had shown to the saints. It had been instituted so that what human frailty had neglected in the celebrations of the saints throughout the year can today, by their merits, be relieved. Because the number of saints is almost infinite and humans are weak and at times short, the Church has reasonably ordained that since... We cannot celebrate the Feast of All Saints individually. At least we can honor them all generally at the same time. End quote. And eventually over time, November 2nd would be added to this as All Souls Day. The eve before All Saints Day on November 1st, that is October 31st, would be called All Hallows Eve, which is what we now call Halloween. The extension to November 2nd, that is All Souls Day, is when all of those who had departed earth, yet without sainthood, those who are in purgatory, would be prayed for. As several commentators of the observances note, the first marked when saints would be prayed to, the second when souls would be prayed for. So purgatory is tied closely with All Souls Day. Now concerning the name of Halloween, we can begin by stating that hollow is an old English designation for to make holy, to sanctify, to honor as holy, etc. This can be seen in your Middle English translations of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, take the King James and read your Lord's Prayer, hallowed be your name, holy be your name. The same term also can denote a saint or a holy person. If we put two to two together, we get All Hallows Day or otherwise All Hallows Eve. And this is All Saints Day or All Saints Eve. When it comes to Halloween, this is actually um, a shortened edition that came from the Scottish people in the 18th century. Within the Scottish context, the observance of All Hallows Eve would be shortened to All Halloween or All Hallows Even. In other words, Halloween is just another way of saying All Saints Eve. Now, by the medieval period, the cult of the saints had run rampant and would be critiqued by the reformers on theological, ethical, and even economic grounds. But also during this period, the liturgy for All Saints Day was elaborately structured to ensure the readings were dedicated to the Trinity, Mary, angels, prophets, apostles, martyrs, confessors, virgins, and all the remaining saints. The liturgy also recalled the first dedication to the Pantheon, that is, the dedication of the Pantheon to Mary, and the institution of All Saints Day with honor and veneration for the saints, filling the remainder of the service. Halloween, or All Hallows Eve, would be, and is to this day, focused on prepping for this veneration of the saints. And All Saints Day is intrinsically and religiously linked to the cult of the saints. A final word is needed for this section, and that is on indulgences. Before we move into the period of the Reformation, we must grasp that the cult of the saints was tied up tightly with indulgences, relics, intercession, expected miracles, shrines, offerings, and eventually icons and images. We won't describe all of these in details. Bartlett's work should be consulted for the most concise but detailed examination of all of these issues, but instead we want to focus on indulgences because of their role in the Reformation. Around the time of the Great Schism in AD 1054 between the East and the West, 
Differences arose on the number of issues, but one of them was on purgatory and on indulgences. The East did not teach this doctrine, while the West, it became a major idea. In the West, it was taught that various aspects of sin's penalty could be removed on earth by penance or by an indulgence. An indulgence is just a pardon for temporal penalties of sin that would be experienced in purgatory. So if a believer died without such a payment for punishment they owed, the outstanding debt would be dealt with in the fire of purgatory. Eventually, the Pope would be recognized as having the power to release souls from purgatory because of the papacy's control over what is called the treasury of merits. These merits were the surplus righteousness of the saints or a storehouse of spiritual wealth. The Pope could transfer these merits from the saints or this treasury to the souls in purgatory via an indulgence and thus pay off the remaining punishment and release them from purgatory and let them into heaven. The East in juxtaposition did not hold to purgatory, at least not in the same way, or the treasury merits or indulgences. Indulgences were not, and I want people to hear this, were not contrary to misconceptions, pay to get out of hell, but rather pay to alleviate time that must be spent in purgatory. This is an important distinction because the indulgence worked for those already on the path to heaven, not for those who would be in hell. And this would really get tied up with mortal and venial sins, but we're not getting into that. If you want to hear about that, go to last year's episode on indulgences. Now, when indulgences were originally formed, they were not received by payment, but instead through an exceptionally good deed. The Crusades would be that shift where indulgences could be accepted or sold for cash. Further clarification here is that the money wasn't the cause for the satisfaction in the time of purgatory, but rather the charity of the giving of cash was. By the end of the Crusades, however, payments were accepted for indulgences, and eventually indulgences would be able to cover not only your future time in purgatory, but also the souls of your loved ones who are already in purgatory. There were more significant developments in the doctrine, especially in the 13th century, and even critiques of the doctrine long before Luther. Still, in 1515, Pope Leo X issued the sale of indulgences in Germany with the purpose of bringing finances to build the Basilica in Rome, that is St. Peter's building, and an individual named John Tetzel acted as the papal agent in the selling of these indulgences with very high emotional manipulation, with heavy promises of instant release from purgatory, for loved ones as soon as one purchased an indulgence. In 1517, Tetzel preached in Wittenberg, eliciting Luther to react as his people were buying these indulgences, believing that salvation could be bought. This led to his 95 Theses, which Luther famously presented at Wittenberg's Castle Church on the public board of October 31st. These theses were entitled The Disputation of the Power and Efficacy of Indulgences, these critiques were in particular aimed at indulgences as presented by Tetzel and the culture of his day, not necessarily the doctrine official, and that would be critiqued later on. Now, while Luther's main contention was the sale of indulgences and questioning purgatory, this tied directly to critiquing the cult of the saints. Luther, however, was one of the more reluctant reformers on the subject. Nonetheless, Luther's posting of the 95 Thesis on October 31st is hardly coincidence, but most likely tied to the fact that it was the eve of All Saints Day. And according to some narratives, there was a vast collection of relics that were kept in the castle church in Wittenberg, where Luther placed his thesis. In turn, when people would pilgrimage to venerate these relics for All Saints Day, Luther's thesis would be in front and center. However, while Luther's timing would have been good for exposure, the means he used to announce his thesis was actually the equivalent of a typical bulletin board, lacking the drama and flair we often attribute to it. 
Following the thesis, Luther's first appearance in 1518 led to the first discussion on the cult of the saints because of his reference to the Treasury of Merits and Thesis 6 of his 95 Thesis. In Luther's disputes and debates, indulgences were ultimately front and center until June 1522, where veneration of the saints would be addressed head on, but we're going to stop there for now. So it would be good to summarize everything we have covered so far. The origins of Halloween have long been associated with this ancient Irish Celtic festival of Samhain, and according to the common narrative, Halloween is considered a Christianized version of Samhain. However, when scrutinizing this narrative, doubts arise in its historical accuracy, especially with scholars like Ronald Hutton, who have pointed out that much of the evidence supporting this connection is based off folklore and lacks concrete historical documentation. The existence of a distinct Celtic ritual year with Samhain as its focal point is questioned, and there is no firm evidence for the year beginning on November 1st in early Ireland or Wales. So the idea that Hawen is a direct Christianized adaptation of Samhain is further challenged by the fact that the celebration of All Saints Day, initially commemorated in May, underwent regional variations and shifted to November in some places, like England and Germany, but remained in April in Ireland. This discrepancy in the dates suggests that the origins of Halloween may not be as straightforward as the narrative implies and raises questions about the connections to Samhain. Additionally, while some of the elements of Halloween, such as bonfires, have been loosely associated with Samhain traditions, the evidence is often weak and speculative. Most of the modern themes and customs can be dated to the last 500 years, which we will talk about in part two. Furthermore, when we looked at the history of All Saints Day and Halloween, it could be argued that there is a subtle and indirect or direct pagan connection that is often overlooked because of the Samhain narrative. It is clear from historians that the Christian view of the cult of the martyrs developed from a common root with the pagans, i.e. the cult of the dead, which would later develop into a cult of the saints, culminating in holidays, but especially All Saints Day. The developments of the cult of the saints seems to have developed from certain elements or practices from pre-existent pagan traditions, particularly those related to, again, the cult of the dead. And this seems readily apparent when we see these elements being shaved off or repackaged later on, especially in the 4th century. In summary, when it comes to pagan roots, the origins of Halloween and its practices may have a more complex layer than a simple transition from Samhain to a Christianized version of Samhain. So it is true that the cults of the martyrs sprung up very quickly and concerns were fairly immediate. In fact, sidebar that it's not in my notes, then the martyrdom of Polycarp, chapter 17, there's actually a brief text about pagans saying, let us take the bones of this martyr before the Christians might take them and turn to worship him instead. And so I find that particularly interesting as we get into today's particular introductory issue and maybe you'll see why here in a second. But nonetheless, we talked about the cult of the martyrs development and that a big shift occurred in the 4th century. And that was when it was shifted from praying for the dead to praying to the dead. And this wasn't the only concern of the era. And so we're going to spend time discussing these different concerns. And then we'll see how that echoes into the Reformation. So in the earliest days of this cult of the saints, and I'm just going to use cult of the saints and cult of the martyrs kind of interchangeably, we find the cult being critiqued by A, those within the church, B, heretics, such as the Gnostics, C, pagans, D, Jews, and E, Muslims. Now, these critiques all followed the same lines of logic, beginning with the fact that the cult of the saints was built upon the cult of the dead, but also because this cult resembled the cult of heroes or the pagan pantheon, the pantheon being the polytheistic um, group of deities in the Greco-Roman world. Um, the cult of heroes 
requires a brief explanation since it has not been described so far. The cult of heroes was a feature in the Greek religion, which would be adopted by the Romans, where the Greeks had heroes and heroines such as Hercules and Achilles and Helen. Of course, it's Heracles, technically. Um, that would be surrounded in extraordinary myths and legends, and ultimately they would be worshipped alongside the gods of the pantheon. And with that came hero shrines, and hero shrines were littered throughout the Greek world since the 8th century BC, and the heroes were sometimes worshipped in a similar fashion as one's dead or the Greek gods. And so this kind of goes back to that ancestor worship, but also this, this pagan pantheon deity worship. Um... Heroes, quote, seem to possess an intermediary type of divinity and demonstrate a variety of Genesis powers and functions. And that's harder and waker in gods and religion and Hellenistic poetry. And again, I'll put these references on the landing page like I did last time. Now, whether or not uh, the cult of the heroes was diverse or uniform is debated. How, how this cult played out in different areas of the Mediterranean world is debated. And so... That's just something worth noting here. In fact, there's one journal article contesting the past hero cult and tomb cult and epic in early Greece that is worth looking into if you feel so compelled. Nonetheless, um, according to Harder and Waker, you had basically these different classifications of hero cults. You had gods, heroes, and the dead, and they could form these three basic groups within the Greco-Roman world with the gods of those who possess a universal and superior power, while the dead are confined to their particular burial spots with the, the least amount of power. And then gods would be um, more regional. They would have divine powers and sometimes would be universal, despite their mortal origins. And a hero sometimes could also be um, head over a particular city. So there's a little bit of a hierarchy here, a little bit of a debate about, um, you know, what that looked like, but ultimately heroes in the hero cult could be distinguished from uh, the less powerful dead by their extraordinary achievements, their importance to, and their worship by an entire community or multiple communities. And these communities would invoke these heroes in order to gain their help or to harm their enemies because these heroes are in a privileged afterlife and have gained deification in one variety or another, right? So ultimately, the Greek religion, which would largely be adopted by the Romans, consisted of gods, regional deities, heroes, and diamones. And within this structure, the cult of the heroes played an important role within various cities, such as acting as a shared identity for the people, but also the cult of heroes included a cult of relics. So while there is a distinction between the pantheon of, you know, the Olympian gods, of course, there were also lesser gods who were also over cities and then you had the Olympians, and then you had the demigods um, who were often the heroes of the hero cult. So you have these different categories, but they're all kind of in the same boat. Um, so with this in place, Christians who defended the cults of the martyrs and the saints would need to defend against these charges. That is, that Christian saints were ultimately just a replacement of the Roman pantheon or the hero cults. Now, you may have heard that before in our day, but that was happening back then, too, at the inception of this cult of the saints. As the Catholic historian Bartlett notes in his work, Why Can the Dead Do Such Great Things? Saints and Worshippers from the Martyrs to the Reformation. Quote, there is a real resemblance, end quote. Both had shrines where one can go and get assistance or advice from. They both had annual rituals and annual festivals. They both could appear in dreams and visions. They could aid in battle or general instructions. They also had expectations for worship. And they also were invoked whether to help or harm. 
Quote, like the saints, the gods were numerous and often provided special patronage either for a city or state or a particular group. Athena was the patron goddess of Athens and Artemis, the patron goddess of the hunters. End quote. And that's Barlett. Barlett also contests that the cult of the saints has more in common with the cult of heroes, given that heroes were human and had tombs on earth. These humans could be demigods or deified after the death or both. Quote, crucially, unlike Zeus, Athena, and the like, they had lived on earth as humans and had undergone death and had an earthly tomb like Christian saints, end quote. So in light of all this, pagans viewed the cult of the saints as a stolen pantheon, an equivalent to their heroes or gods. This charge was also taken up by others that I listed above. That is those within the church, that is uh, Jews, Muslims, Gnostics, so on and so forth. Now, St. Augustine, in his famous work, The City of God, mentions these people groups, likely the pagans, who, quote, consider that the pagans worship the gods in temples while we worship the dead in their tombs. Augustine also points out in the same work that both had shrines, priests, altars, and relics, and yet he worked to clarify the difference between the two by pointing out that Christians believe the sacrifices were the Eucharist or communion to God and not to the martyrs themselves. Now, if one could remember correctly, though, Augustine was actually pushing back at this time against banquets that worked against his position here. It was only during his time that he was starting to correct or move the, the banquets from the cult of the dead to being a Eucharistic observance. This kind of goes to show that slippery slope or that blurred line where on paper it sounds good, but in practice it quickly devolved into something indistinguishable from its pagan neighbors. Now, this whole argument, this point of contention, continued throughout Augustine's life and into the presence, exemplified in the modern founding father in the study of the cult of the saints, a Catholic named Hippolyte Delhay. I think that's how you say his name, Delhay or Delhay. And he admits that these parallels existed, and he gives many examples, and he ultimately concludes, quote, When one has demonstrated among the Greeks a cult in which, in all of its details, recalls that of the saints with its tombs, translations, inventions, visions, or dubious of forged relics, what further parallels could one demand in order to establish that the cult of the saints is nothing but pagan survival? And that's in his work, The Legend of the Saints, page 156. And again, that will be in the notes. Now, after drawing that conclusion, he goes on to say that the distinction between the cult of the saints and the cult of the, the pagans is that the cult of the saints came from the cult of the martyrs, not from the cult of the heroes. So despite these resemblances, despite the other Catholic scholars saying that it has close resemblance with the cult of the heroes, the argument is because it came from the cult of the martyrs, which in the last episode I connected with the cult of the dead, it is nothing than mere pagan survival. However, these types of arguments were back in those older periods and was insufficient for those in those periods. And so while you could get the impression from the last episode that this cult's development occurred unanimously without pushback, that was simply not the case. At all times, in every century, there has been skeptical and critical voices against the cult of the martyrs, saints, relics, miracles, and of course, their festivities and the events and rituals around those festivities. It is worth noting that while the Bishop of Rome would have much influence in the West, it is also important to note that there was no ecumenical council to make these practices binding on the universal church. At the same time, they were popular, they were heavily held, so there is that balance of strike here. A local assembly in Egypt would actually gather and try to shut down critics, and these critics were pushing back against the idea of having services at a martyr's tomb, and this council would actually issue an anathema for those who denied this practice. But again, this was a local 
not an ecumenical council. Still, one early critic spoken about by Calvin, actually, in his work against relics, provides us with a more clear picture of what this tension looked like in the 400s. An author named Vigilantius would write against the cult of the relics, calling it old paganism clothed in a pretext of religion. He would argue that the dead cannot pray for the living, that the saints did not have special intercessory power, and he would go after rituals such as keeping candles and night vigils at saints' shrines. The key responder to Vigilantius's um, argumentation was Jerome, who is famous for his Latin Vulgate. Uh, in his work, Jerome suggests that Vigilantius's position was not a lone ranger pushing back against the cult, but instead a force to be reckoned with. So that's worth consideration. It wasn't just this one person. In fact, Jerome would actually note that Vigilantius had supporters, and that included bishops, and that is in his work against Vigilantius. At the end of the day, however, it looks like Jerome won out in this battle as his position would set the trajectory in the West, leading to All Saints Day in the 7th century. Still, the debates wouldn't end there. There were debates in the East on the matter of icons, that's very famous in Nicaea too, which these icons were intrinsically tied to this cult of the saints and would be a major point of contention in the Reformation. We won't focus too much on icons, but this was an issue tied to all that. So during those debates, many spoke against the intercession of the saints and claimed that the souls of the saints could not appear on earth. Fast forwarding a little bit, in the 11th century, there was another rise in several groups who would come to reject the cult of the saints and their annual festivities. And when we have our writings where these groups were talked about and these commentaries on these groups continue through the 12th century, they are noting as doubting the intercession of the saints, putting no reliance in the saints, denying purgatory and denying the prayers for the dead. Some outright mocked veneration, um, invocation, offerings, pilgrimages, and of course, the feast days. These groups were not created equal. Some were Gnostics, right, so, such as the Cathars, and others were precursors to the Reformation, such as the Waldensians. I'm pretty sure I pronounced that correctly. I'm not sure. Anyway, this group would attack various fabricated miracles done by the saints and claim that the saints were unable to hear the prayers addressed to them, and they denounced veneration given to the saints. This logically tied into rejecting intercession and the feasts around this cult. Another group that was a precursor to the Reformation that held these views was known as the Lollards, who were inspired by the theologian of John Wycliffe in the 14th century. They held all the same concerns, but they also emphasized the fact that there was a lot of immorality around the feast days and people would treat them as holidays for, for immoral sensuality, but also they would critique the cost of the pilgrimages and the icons. So all of the survey is basically just to demonstrate very quickly this close relationship between these ancient critics and the reformers in terms of what they're critiquing, how they're critiquing, and what, what the problems were that they solved. So we will find many of these same critiques being levied by the reformers going forward. So now we can get into the Reformation. So far, it's been shown that in terms of Samhain, uh, the pagan origins of Halloween are difficult to substantiate, but this doesn't mean that there isn't a case to be made for a pagan origin of Halloween, given its tight connection to the cult of the dead in the early centuries, and in addition to this, the cult of the saints parallels with the pagan pantheon and the cult of the heroes. So this also includes, of course, the assimilation of rituals and practices. Even while Christians were attempting to strip some of those connections, those general, fundamental, foundational similarities remained. So let's talk about the Reformation. We highlighted Luther's move into his critique of the saints, which began as an indictment against indulgences. We talked about that at the end of part one. 
But at the same time, the cult of the saints had radically affected all of life during the period of the Reformation, leading to numerous objections on various grounds, most of which we simply cannot cover here. What we do know is that the Reformers, despite their differences, universally denounced the cult of the saints and what it produced. Yet, the approaches in the timelines amongst them are different. Luther, for example, seemed to have a harder time letting go of his fondness for the saints, and likewise exhibited a more tender approach and calling people under his care to move on from them. Others, however, took a firm approach and, you know, ripped the band-aid off kind of thing. The issues that the reformers took, leading to hundreds of pamphlets, sermons, and debates against the cult of the saints, were multiple. Many of the critiques were levied at the clergy and the monks who would abuse the cult of the saints and its attachments, such as relics, indulgences, pilgrimages, etc., for their own personal gain. Luther was most concerned with how the cult led to works righteousness, and especially to how Christ is seen as non-approachable and that you need this intermediary in order to approach Christ. You needed merits to approach Christ, and so you had to go through a saint to get to Christ. This means that ultimately Luther's concern was people would pick a favorite patron saint because they were more approachable because of the way that Christ meant painting as a judge. Now, they would complain that the cult of the saints led to a waste in time, money, and energy, as pamphlets noted, the Pope sold plentiful of indulgences to build their churches, cloisters, cells, chapels, altars, wooden saints, and more. By the way, a great book if you want to really dig into this particular issue is Protestants and the Cult of the Saints in German-speaking Europe, 1517-1531, by Hemming. And uh, that's going to be my primary source for this particular section. Now, one of the most famous issues regarding the saints concerns the destructions of icons and images, but like I said, we're not going to particularly focus there. People were dependent upon the saints. They treated them as deities in superstition, despite alleged distinctions between mere veneration and worship. In addition to this, the, the poor would actually use whatever scraps they have in order to take these pilgrimages, buy indulgences, see a relic, and find a miracle through them. And at the same time, partake in debauchery on these feast days and those pilgrimages. The reformers were particularly concerned about these groups or orders of monks and their abuses of the cult of the saints. Luther and others came out of these orders of monks and grew into their critiques with numerous complaints. Now, one of these complaints dealt with the way that the monks understood and devoted themselves to the saints rather than Christ. Furthermore, because there was a hierarchy being developed, the superiority of the saints made further dependence on the laity who were far below the superior status of canonical sainthood. And when I say canonical sainthood, I mean those saints that were deemed by the church to actually be saints because not everyone was considered a saint. You had to gain canonical status. And so Luther, reflecting on his relationship to Christ in this climate, notes along with the reformers that in these orders, Christ was viewed as a grim judge and tyrant, and the grace and consolation could only be found in running to Mary and the saints and hoping for their intercession on their behalf because no one was righteous enough to approach God the Son. In addition to this, the begging orders of monks, that is, those monks who lived only on alms, took significant critiques because of their incessant sales of relics. Records detail that these begging monks would collect money everywhere in exchange for significant indulgences. Relics were also critiqued because they would offer up these miracles if you gave a significant offering, and a lot of these relics were just simply made up and ridiculous. It was not only the monks who abused the saints, but also the regular clergy. One Protestant, um, as recorded by Hemming, states, For a long time we have clung to the saints and pushed God under our feet. It is pitiful that we are so blind and have sought no consolation where we should have. 
But our priests and monks have led us astray and have tricked us with fraudulent figures. In one they poured oil in the back of their head so that it poured out from its eyes, and another blood so that it would sweat blood, and so forth. About this they say, look, isn't this a great miracle? Thus the poor, wretched peasants have been taken in and have invoked the saints and abandoned God. In addition to this, the monks' various vows to saints was worthy of critique. The Swiss reformer Ulrich Zwingli would say, quote, After Christ alone, we are to carry our cross without hesitation, not after Dominic, Benedict, Francis, Anthony, or Bernard. Should Francis or Dominic or any others be among us today, they would undoubtedly say, Oh, you fools, what are you doing? Do you not know that you are not to have any other teacher, father, or leader but God alone? Why do you attach yourselves to us who all of our lives adhere to God only? End quote. So abuses abound by the clergy, but reformers were also concerned with the laity. Superstition and disorder were fed by the reliance on the saints, but not only this, but Protestant writers reflected on awareness of the cult's connection to the ancient pantheon. The same thing we were talking about at the beginning of this episode. Johannes Brenz states in a sermon concerning the saints, quote, The pagans had two kinds of gods. Some were venerated because they bestowed favors, and some because they warded off evil spirits, such as fever, pestilence, and so forth. We too venerate some saints because they bestow favors such as Nicholas and some because they turn away evil such as Valentine and Sebastian. He concludes this portion of his analysis unequivocally with a summary of paganism. In one piece of literature, there is a dialogue between a fictional Christian and a Jew appears wherein the Jew compares the Christian saints to gods and goddesses of the pagans, saying it is as if the only God was not powerful enough, end quote. So you can further see some of those connections as Jews were some of the ones critiquing the cult of the saints. Literature like this abounds during the Reformation, pointing out that people worship and devote themselves to patron saints, bringing them offerings, making pilgrimages to their shrines to see fabricated miracles and bones that may just be remains of a pig. The Reformers also critiqued the people for drunkenness during their saints' feast days or attending brothels during their pilgrimages. Further, while there were attempts to separate veneration from worship on paper, in practice, they were indistinguishable. What is important to point out is that these critiques during the Reformation were against a long and popular tradition. However, again, they were not alone in these critiques throughout the centuries. There are many narratives that the Reformation was doing something novel in its critiques. This is another example of where it was not. But at the end of the day, this all came down to authority. Because in the midst of many objections, one foundation upheld all those objections in that sola scriptura. When it came to both the theological and ethical issues, it was scripture that upheld the reformers' arguments. Scripturally, the reformers argued against works righteousness, indulgences, treasury of merits, invocation, intermediary states, and of course, the pantheon of saints that were leading to idolatry. They argued that calling upon the saints had no warrant in scripture and that any intercession found was actually found upon those on earth, not between those on earth and those already passed on. In fact, one level of the debate was the absence of any reference to saints who had departed having contact with those on earth. The reality that everyone in Christ was a saint was also another point of contention as it eliminated that hierarchy that would cause dependence upon the saint. What needs to be stressed here is that the reformers took no issue. They took no issue with the idea that the saints were praying for the church based on the imagery found in Revelation. That is something in our context that we, we deny. The reformers were fine with that. The saints pray for the church. We see that in Revelation. But what they took issue with was the idea that we should pray to those who had passed and the presupposition that the saint had the capacity to hear, recognize, know, and move in response to such a prayer after they had passed from the earth. When parallels are drawn between asking loved ones to pray for you 
and praying to the saints, the distinction is clear. The former is on earth. You are not communicating with those who have passed, and you're making a request to them. You're not praying to them who are in the next realm. In addition to all of this, intercession of the saints was not a mere request for intercession or prayers on one's behalf, but instead it was linked to asking a saint to do something themselves for you or to rely on their merits in order to give more weight to our prayers as they approach Christ on our behalf. What is sure is that every critique levied at the cult of the saints from their formers was laced in scriptural backing. The general disposition was that there was simply no foundation in scripture for veneration of the saints and blaming the papacy for leading people into vain fantasy and trickery that does not please God, but instead fills the Pope's wallet. Basically, any text you could find on idolatry or images were brought up against the practice, but especially the text about Christ himself being the high priest and the intercessor. John was cited when Jesus says, ask me anything in my name. And Timothy was cited where Paul writes that Jesus is the one mediator between God and men. Hemming notes that the pronouncement that Christ is the only intercessor shows up in many texts. And nearly every condemnation of pagan idolatry was enlisted in the effort to discredit the use of saints' images. And saints were equated to other gods, false gods, strange gods, false prophets, idols, and the like, end quote. For the reformers, the cult of the saints was not merely honoring a cloud of witnesses, but blatant idolatry where the commandment to have no other god was sufficient for their argumentation. This became especially potent when it came to the offerings, shrines, and holy days. Communications with those who had passed, who had died, even if alive, was flatly condemned in the Old Testament, making for such a practice cut down at the root. Deuteronomy 18.11 regarding consulting the dead, being detestable to the Lord, would be cited among other texts, indicating the limitation of the past saint. Some would also counter with texts such as Luke 16 where Lazarus communicates with Abraham, but this would be pointed out to be a bad argumentation as Lazarus and Abraham were both in the realm of the dead. Verses like Jeremiah 17.5 recited that cursed is the man that trusts in man along with other texts of similar sentiments such as Psalm 118, 8-9. New Testament texts were invoked in a similar fashion, such as when John falls at the angel's feet in Revelation, is corrected to instead worship God. A logical argument would be presented as well regarding the alleged miracles of the saints, where the reformers would argue that no saint worked miracles in their own power, but instead by God. They are not worthy of undeserving veneration for those miracles that are attributed to God. A final note is that the reformers still value the saints as examples of the faith, and they would regularly cite the theologians of the church in their theological reflections. And this set the precedent for recognizing that those who pass should not be forgotten, but that to institute rituals and religion for the sake of them was to cross a line. While men can receive and be shown honor, relics, shrines, icons for the purpose of vigils, and icons for the purpose of being prayed to were clearly beyond mere veneration. While the distinction looked good on paper, its outworking was a violation of scripture. So when we get to the point after the Reformation, the struggles on the cult of the saints were not immediately resolved, but it was a long and slow process to move congregants to rely on Christ rather than the cult of the saints. Christ as God the incarnate could be too intimidating to approach, and so the temptation was to move to a saint in order to approach him on their behalf. Even when it comes to certain feasts, there were some reformers who would condemn the cult of the saints as it was articulated by Rome, but still allow tapering off of the liturgical observances of saint days, including All Saints Day. While all Protestant traditions modified how they viewed the saints, only some branches retained a normative observance of All Saints Day, and thus Halloween. The Reformed tradition in particular, and the Puritans, 
would reject Halloween, though, along with other holidays. And you can see um, the work by James um, Holy Time and Sacred Space in Puritan New England. Barlett describes this as, quote, The cult of the saints virtually disappeared from Protestant Europe. Pilgrimages, relics, liturgies of the saints, and most images had gone. So what's our conclusion? In the context of the Reformation's theological legacy, the objections to Halloween extend beyond what we generally think of. The struggle first began with authority, that is, scripture. But then it went into the nature of faith, a rejection of the cult of the saints, and then exclusivity for Christ's role as mediator between humanity and God. For the Reformers, led by figures like Martin Luther, the central tenet of the movement was the primacy of Scripture. But at the end of the day, the rejection of Halloween and All Saints Day was according to its historical roots, that is, around the cult of the saints. It was not merely a cultural or merely pagan origins, though the Reformers argued that, but also a deep-seated concern for preserving the purity of the faith and worship as defined by Scripture and the teaching of the Reformers. Still, there are Protestants who are more and more celebrating All Saints Day, but stripped from the elements that the Reformers took specific issue with. The reasoning behind it being that these saints are indeed added to our great cloud of witnesses and worthy of honor, just as we are called to honor each other in our day-to-day -day lives. Now, what this looks like in Protestant circles differs pretty greatly, but generally there is an agreement that the saints are not seen as mediators or to be prayed to, but instead examples that we can remember and pay homage to without the papist extra-biblical tradition. Now let's get into modern Halloween. So it took some time for Halloween to actually gain traction in the United States, but when it did, many developments occurred and continue to occur to this day. Ultimately, the traditions that we know in our culture regarding Halloween are heavily debated and have a different story attached to them almost every time I read about them. What many accounts seem to agree upon are that these traditions are modern, and when I say modern, I mean that they haven't arisen until the last 500 years. Now, while these practices are still a factor in whether one will consider celebrating Halloween, they're not necessarily connected to the original Halloween. The best way that they could be connected to our modern context is the theme of death and that darkness of death and the ghouls and ghosts and things of that nature because of the original celebration around the cults of the dead and honoring the dead. So we're going to look very briefly at some of these uh, traditions. We're going to paint a broad picture, but remember that these origins seem to differ and can be debated, making it quite difficult. So let's look at them. So when it comes to the jack-o'-lantern, this is a tradition from the 1800s of a man named Jack who was a trickster in evil. He outwitted the devil, which had him cast out of hell. And following this, Jack took a glowing coal and placed it inside of a turnip as a lantern to light his way as he wandered the earth. And you can see that and uh, hollowed in America contemporary customs and performances by, well, Jack Santino. Uh, this story appears in variations, but the core kind of remains the same. So even if you find differences, you'll find the same story. Now, according to some sources, this story was actually a folk tale that explained a phenomenon that occurred in marshlands uh, and bods where a light would flicker from gases. And often it's connected to fool's fire, fairy lights, or will-o'-the-wisp, and this kind of has connection to uh, fallen angels, especially with the imagery of fairies in the Irish culture. And that could be said to have some parallels with Jack's being cast out of hell and walking around uh, with his turnip. Now, eventually the story would reshape entirely due to its adoption in American culture, especially with the legend of Sleepy Hollow in 1820. Carving pumpkins seems to have begun sometime in the 1890s, and from there it's history. Regarding costumes, it's hard to find one narrative on this one too. Um, 
the common one is that these were costumes for Samhain and warding off evil spirits. However, that's difficult to substantiate as we talked about in part one. Other traditions link wearing costumes to the era of the bubonic plague in France, which is kind of interesting. And basically what it was is that after the plague, where France lost a great deal of population, imagery of popes, kings, ladies, knights, monks, peasants, you know, just name a bunch of people, were painted on the tombs and eventually a dance in commemoration of the dead to remember them um, would ensue where people would dress up as these figures and sometimes this would be integrated with All Souls Day um, on November 2nd and eventually would come to include um, people in various stages of life or states of life. Um, so the French dressed up on All Souls Day, but not Halloween. And this will kind of be seen with the trick-or-treating too. We don't really know how it got moved over to Halloween, but the theory is that when the British colonies in North America in the 1700s first had French Catholics come in, they started mingling, right? And so that's, that's another one that's kind of hard to tell. So for trick-or-treating, uh, its origins are a little bit easier, but, but I mean that pretty, pretty strenuously. It's a little bit easier. Some have linked it to souling in the 9th century, where the poor would go door-to-door -door asking for soul cakes in exchange for a promise to pray for the souls of the homeowner's relatives. Um, in this view, children would eventually take it up, but go door-to-door -door asking for gifts such as food, money, and ale. And according to History.com, in Scotland and Ireland, uh, young people took part in a tradition called guising, that is dressing up in a costume and accepting offerings from various households. But rather than pledging to pray for the dead, they would sing a song, recite a poem, tell a joke, or perform another sort of trick before collecting their treat, which typically consisted of fruit, nuts, and coins. Now, some argue that it has more to do with Guy Fawkes Day more than anything, and so let's explain that. Following the English Reformation... Roman Catholicism was suppressed and resistance occurred on occasion with some more being violent than others. And one example of that violence was in 1605, there was a plot to blow up the Protestant King James I and Parliament. And this ideally would lead to a revolution for the Catholics against the English Protestants. But the plot was foiled when a guy named Guy Fox was arrested, hanged, and the plan just kind of dwindled out. His failure came to be known as Guy Fox Day for England on November 5th. And it is said when people observed it, they would put on masks and heckle Catholics demanding treats at the threat of tricks. In addition to this, the celebration had community bonfires, sometimes called bonefires, as they would burn models of the Pope. In the 19th century, children took it up, um, and by night they started wearing masks of Guy Fox, and they went door-to-door -door asking for treats. Now, within the colonies of America, some celebrated Guy Fawkes Day, and this would increase as immigrants came over in the mid-19th century, and this would continue through the 20th century. By the 1920s, pranks became the activities of choice because of tension during the Great Depression, and, quote, one theory suggests that excessive pranks of Halloween led to widespread adoption of an organized community-based trick-or-treating tradition in the 1930s. This trend would abruptly curtail, however, with the outbreak of World War II, when sugar rationing meant that there were few treats to hand out. At the height of this post-war baby boom, trick-or-treating reclaimed its place among other Halloween customs. It quickly became the standard practice for millions of children in American cities and newly built suburbs. No longer constrained by the sugar rationing, candy companies capitalized on the lucrative ritual, launching national advertising campaigns specifically aimed at Halloween, end quote. And that is history.com. Again, I'll put that link in the landing page. So while the practice has more vivid theories there are still multiple threads being pulled that makes it difficult to track for instance how did guy fox day on november 5th move to the 31st 
if that theory is viable. But ultimately, it, it seems to just be because America is a melting pot and all these groups came together and basically created its own new American thing. And you kind of see the snowballing, right? Uh, when it comes to the inclusions of things such as witches and other imagery, um, we find that really capitalism became the main thrust of that, the same way that candy campaigns began to sell more candy. So with witches in particular, it's just kind of an interesting story. They found their way into the Halloween season because of greeting cards. The greeting card industry was doing well in the 19th century. And in the 1890s, new cards came out, Halloween cards, and they would come out with images of witches, jack-o'-lanterns, ghosts, and children being frighted by you know figures and masks until the Halloween greeting card business became non-lucrative in 1930, which honestly, Halloween greeting cards is kind of weird. And the history here is interesting uh, because it really does show how capitalism is feeding into a lot of things. And we see that today with, with all the, the parades, festivals, you know, amusement park um, sections dedicated to Halloween. And of course, you can't go into your, you know, your local store without there being a whole Halloween section and things like that. Um, and so it's just very interesting. Now, most of the innovations we know of in our culture seem to be kind of built within our culture but they began playing off of evil themes that were kind of colored innocently. And as time has progressed, it needed to become more shocking, as, as does everything. And so here we are, where there's this perpetual darkening of the holiday um, over the decades from the 50s to today. And that's just indicative of a culture that's deeply sick. So let's talk about neo-pagans in our modern day. Today, Halloween varies from state to state in its severity in terms of you know how dark it is. Overall, one of the issues that arises often is um, real neo-pagan rituals and practices that are now tied to the day, okay? So whether the origins of Halloween are actually linked to Samhain, many new pagans or neo-pagans are convinced regardless, and, you know, there's records of detestable acts on Halloween basically found each year. But what needs to be known is that neo-paganism that movement is young, and it has its roots in the 20th century. If you want to learn more about that, you can go to BritaCanada.com um, on modern neo-paganism or modern paganism. But let's just go ahead and go through some of it. So this is firstly important because we cannot base our ideas off of these groups that not only, A, try to recreate old pagan religions, but B, they try to subvert Christianity via these polemics. So new paganism and its attempts to recreate old pagan religions generally is diverse because of how old pagan religions are first based on folklore, and then these groups are not all created the same. Some of them are more like fanciful, and others are more um, historically or archaeologically based. But this also means that we should take their claims at face value, especially because their disposition is taking these pagan rituals back from Christianity. They have a disposition against Christianity that needs to be taken into account whenever we're evaluating their claims. So this is all to say that neo-pagans mocking Christians each year for celebrating an alleged pagan festival is no accident. And part of their overall ideology to reclaim what Christians stole um, becomes the basis for that. Yet, what was allegedly stolen is up for debate, giving dubious accounts of many pagan observances, right? We, we talk about this with, with Christmas, with Easter, and, and now we're talking about with Samhain. So this group of neo-pagans includes a group known as the Wiccans. A lot of people know the Wiccans. But Wicca's first appearance in the mainstream was actually in the 1950s. And they believe that their religion was, quote, the survival of a pre-Christian witch's religion, an idea later rejected by historians. And that's from the Britannica. 
um, article. I don't know if I ever say that word correctly. Anyway, in the 60s and 70s, the Wiccan movement found syncretism with various movements, especially second wave feminism, which is interesting, and the early homosexual and bisexual communities. So it was in the 70s where modern pagan religions had a particular gain in traction in the U.S. and in Britain in particular. Various groups formed, such as the Neo-Druids, that is a new type of, um, well, they're trying to reclaim the Druid movement, right? And others such as, you know, the, the advocates of heathenry, right, being heathens. And so by the 2000s, the Neo-Pagans had grown substantially, but a shift occurred where they were actually turning to worship particular pantheons, such as the Greco-Roman gods or the ancient Egyptian gods. In this whole ordeal, a movement arose called the Reconstructionists who viewed themselves as purists against the Wiccans and the Druids. The reason why is because the Wiccans and the Druids typically just assimilated various ideologies and myths for their basis or their theology and their practices, right? The Reconstructionists, however, were more purist in that they were concerned with what the actual historical data said about their observances and their practices. So when it comes to Halloween, some of these groups such as the Wiccans, will observe under the heading of Samhain, and they consider this the Witch's New Year, and they establish an altar and tools for divination and relics surrounding death. And you can go read up on that. I have sources. I I don't know that you're really going to want to go read them, but I, they're going to be in the bio. Um, so some claim that trick-or-treating is part of uh, the ritual and scaring off evil spirits, but again, this is based on assumption not proven uh, via connections to Samhain. But a common thread is saying that meals should be prepared in order to dine with those individuals who had passed into the next realm. Now, an interesting thing to note is that on one Neo-Pagan's sources, they state, despite occurring at similar times and containing similar themes, Samhain and Halloween are not the same holiday. Halloween, short for All Hallows' Eve, is celebrated on and around October 31st and tends to be more family-focused. On the other hand, Samhain is more religious in focus and spiritually observed by practitioners. There are some more lighthearted observances in honor of the dead through Samhain, but the underlying tone of Samhain is one of serious religious practice rather than a lighthearted make-believe reenactment. Today's pagan Samhain rites are benevolent, and although they are somber and centered on death, they do not involve human or animal sacrifices, as some rumors may claim. Another difference between Samhain and Halloween is that most Samhain rituals are held in private rather than public. And that's from Gaia.com on Modern Paganism, 13 Rituals to Celebrate Samhain. But the source makes a distinction between the cultural observance of Halloween and Samhain. In fact, saying Halloween that it's not really a religious observance, which is kind of interesting. But it detaches the two and it claims that the former is not inherently religious, while the latter Samhain is. And I find this interesting because this ultimately means that uh, just like Catholics who separate the traditional Halloween from All Hallows' Eve and All Saints' Day, some neo-pagans recognize Halloween as a mere cultural phenomenon too. Just kind of interesting. So in addition to this issue are the number of Satanists that have co-opted the day. One article summarizes the issue well. Anton LaVey formed the Church of Satan in 1966 and wrote the Satanic Bible within a few years. It is important to note that this was the first organized religion to ever label itself as Satanic. LaVey stipulated three holidays for his version of Satanism. The first and foremost most important date is each Satanist's own birthday. Uh, let me skip ahead a little bit. Um, and the two other holidays are one I cannot pronounce, to be honest, on April 30th and Halloween on October 31st. Both dates were often considered witch holidays in popular culture, and thus they became linked with Satanism. LaVey adopted Halloween less because of its inherently Satanic meaning in the date, but more as a joke on those who superstitiously feared it. 
Contrary to some conspiracy theories, Satanists do not view Halloween as the devil's birthday. Satan is a symbolic figure in the religion. Furthermore, the Church of Satan describes October 31st as the fall climax and a day to costume according to one's inner self or reflect a recently deceased loved ones. The article then asks, but is Halloween satanic? So yes, Satanists do celebrate Halloween as one of their holidays. However, this is very recent adoption. Halloween was celebrated long before Satanists had anything to do with it. Therefore, historically, Halloween is not satanic. Today, it only makes sense to call it satanic when referencing its celebration by the actual Satanists. And that is from learnreligious.com is Halloween satanic. In addition to this, there is a quote often attributed to LaVey that states, quote, I am glad that Christians let their kids worship the devil at least one night of the year, end quote. The problem is, however, that there seems to be no source available for this quote. It is likely that if he did state it, he probably said it out of sarcasm, especially given that LaVey's Satanism was less spiritual and more naturalistic and hedonistic because LaVey himself was actually an atheist. I remember reading the Satanic Bible a long time ago before I came to Christ, and it's basically that. It's basically self-indulgent humanism, basically what you would think of as secular humanism, um, but with a um, hedonistic, you know, do what feels good kind of twist. So that said, um, having pagans or Satanists or neo-pagans really co-opt the day is not enough to abandon it or to, to call it pagan in its roots, especially if these movements, you know, date after, long after, like into the 1920th century, right? Um, and so, as I have argued with Christmas and Easter, we need to view these holidays on its own intention, on its own terms. Um, and the same goes for commercialization. You know, everything is commercialized. We talk about this with Christmas and Easter. And this is not a good enough reason to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We can parallel this with marriage. Marriage is heavily commercialized. It's one of the most expensive things. And it's also co-opted by society and twisted. We know that uh, given our culture wars today. Yet we do not abandon marriage because of these things. Instead, we preserve and hold on to it because of its foundation and its roots. And so that goes back to the question, what are the roots of Halloween? But first, let's talk about modern day Catholics. So contemporary Catholic commentators lament that the innovations of costumes and candy have overshadowed the religious roots of the observance of All Hallows' Eve, which again is inseparably linked to All Saints' Day, and in the contemporary settings, All Saints' Day is also an obligatory observance within the Catholic Church. While there are other saint commemorations, they are not obligatory like All Saints' Day is. One website speaks to the foundations of Halloween well. It says, quote, The feast was originally the date of the Pantheon's dedication, May 13, 609, and the date of an already existing feast in the East. It was later moved to its current date on the Roman calendar, where it is followed by the commemoration of all souls, that is, those righteous dead being purified in purgatory, end quote. And that is from EWTN.com on, you know, Seasons of Feast Days, All Saints Day. So at its foundational roots, it is a cult of the saints holiday. In some shape or form, the Protestant Reformation threw a wrench in the whole thing. Having the 95 Theses being commemorated on the 31st, you know, is quite an interesting dynamic because it's the opposite position. If we throw in some traditions like the Guy Fox day, then basically it becomes a Protestant mockery of Catholicism's failed plot to, um, you know, make the English reformation fail. And so there's a lot of interesting dynamics going on here. Now, what you may not know is that Catholics often have the same discussions that we do on Halloween. The question being, should Christians observe Halloween 
But in this context, it's most specifically, should Christians observe all the extra cultural stuff? Generally, I have found that Catholics will say yes, um, underneath these principles of guarding oneself from the darkness and approaching it with wisdom. They often state that those cultural additions um, to this holy day are fine, but they should not be the dominant theme of the day, right? It should be a focus on uh, prepping for All Saints Day. And so for Catholics, the bottom line is that it's an ancient holiday that is theirs to observe, and the tacked-on fun practices are not a problem without moderation and wisdom, right? So we have some Protestants that argue that same way about you know moderation and wisdom. So modern-day Protestantism on Halloween, there's a range of positions, and I try to list them out in my head and categorize them, and it's really difficult because there's overlap, right? So considering, you know, observing Halloween in terms of, you know, the costumes, trick-or-treating, etc., these are the positions that I have observed that I can think of. Um, but again, remember that there is overlap and blending together, and so neatly packaging the views is very difficult. I almost tried to make a chart, but couldn't bring myself to do it because it was just, I didn't feel like trying to figure that out. So here's the list of perspectives I came up with. First, Halloween is pagan and should be abstained from. Second, Halloween is Catholic and should be abstained from. Third, Halloween is cultural, but focused on things abhorrent to God and therefore should be abstained from. Fourth, Halloween is pagan and root, but has radically changed by culture, and it's fine to observe or alternates can be considered. Five, Halloween may be pagan, Catholic, or cultural, but it is an opportunity for outreach and evangelism with clean alternatives. When I say clean, I mean not, you know, darkness, wicked, blood, gore, all that stuff. Uh, six, Halloween is Christian and should be reclaimed, and it is fine to observe it as a religious observance that is for the saints with fun activities being also permissible, okay? So this is those Protestants that say we should observe All Saints Day or commemorate the saints in that way. Seven, Halloween is Christian and should be reclaimed and fine to observe with clean alternatives. When I say in this position, Halloween is Christian, I'm specifically talking about those people who view it as a Christian holiday on a very surface level, like, oh, it's just about, you know, remembering the saints. Um... Number eight, Halloween is cultural and it's fine to observe with proper wisdom. So it's purely cultural. Number nine, Halloween is best understood as Reformation Day and can be celebrated as such with or without the, the extra cultural stuff. So like I said, some of these blend together. And so to neatly package these views gets very difficult. Um, like, for example, the alternative positions could be kind of seen as, you know, abstaining, but... It's debatable. Another question kind of comes up with fall festivals. Like, what do we do about fall festivals in general? And I'll kind of answer that question here. I, I view fall festivals as being seen as alternatives, but generally not really because they can fall as early as the beginning of October to the end. You know, there's spring festivals, there's fall festivals, there's summer festivals. And so I don't know that you can necessarily attach to Halloween, though sometimes they are. Um, I've seen both where it's linked directly to Halloween and others where it's detached minus, you know, seasonal vegetation like pumpkins. Um, so that one's a little bit out there. I'm not considering that one. What gets tricky is that we need to ask when we're talking about celebrating Halloween, are we discussing celebrating the Eve before All Saints Day? That is with this religious focus or just the culture games now associated with the day? Because some people try to blend those and say, well, we're taking back the Christian holiday by trick-or-treating, well, that's not that's not really the same thing. You, you can't conflate that. You can't say you're taking it back by trick-or-treating. Um, you can say that you're countering pagan culture 
by evangelism and outreach and trick-or-treating with tracks and stuff like that. But you can't say that you're observing, you know, like all Saints Eve or All Saints Day while you're trick-or-treating because that's not what All Saints Day or All Saints Eve was or is. Like there's a mass that you go to at night if you're a Catholic to prep for All Saints Day. But most of the time that we're talking about Halloween, we're talking about all the cultural games now, um, you know, trick-or-treating and stuff like that. Um, But in its most strict sense, Halloween is a Catholic holiday rooted in All Saints Day and everything else is kind of extra. So let's move into the drawing thoughts and conclusion section. So as we have seen, Halloween is quite the special case. We have several factors at play. In essence, we have different versions of Halloween to really consider, whether it be a religious uh, practice in a pagan sense or a Catholic sense or merely a cultural American cultural uh, sense. And, and then if we throw Reformation Day into the mix, then we now have another dilemma, whether or not it's a Protestant celebration on the same day. And this doesn't include the reality that sometimes Reformation Day is observed in a similar way to Halloween with costumes and candy. So you have this Protestant religious plus American cultural. And so you have these different combinations of what Halloween actually is. So the question of whether or not Christians should participate in Halloween has sparked debate and reflections within the Christian community for decades. This episode, I mean, actually, you can go farther than decades because this was a conversation happening during the Reformation whenever they were first detesting Halloween. But that's, again, in a more religious or Catholic sense. This episode certainly will not solve anything for you. In fact, it could probably complicate the matter for you more. It might actually help you settle things, but it most likely will not. At the end of the day, you must simply not participate if your mind is not settled. And the reason why is because according to Paul, if you do something like this, if you participate and you're not settled on it, you are doing so in sin. It is counted as a sin. You can go read Romans 14 and study that there. So let's consider the general positions um, and do the pros and cons. So non-participation is our first one. Non-participation involves abstaining from Halloween activities altogether, viewing them as incompatible with one's Christian faith. Generally, this position argues from the position that Halloween is so clouded in darkness that to participate is to forfeit what God says about living in truth, light, and life, right? Sometimes this view maintains that it's also damaging to the Christian witness, even despite outreach events, as those events are generally seen as merely different ways to participate in the observance. A less prominent position in this non-participation category is abstaining because the holiday roots in Catholicism. That's really what we've been talking about in these two parts, but that's the lesser position. So let's talk about the pros. The pros of this position maintains religious purity and avoids any potential conflicts with Christian beliefs, and it demonstrates a commitment to upholding one's faith and convictions. So what about the cons? Well, the cons are that it may isolate individuals or families from community events and neighborhood interactions, but it could also be perceived as judgmental or exclusionary by those who do participate in Halloween. So what's option number two? Alternative celebrations. Opting for alternative celebrations on October 31st provides an opportunity for a positive, faith-centered engagement with the community. This approach fosters fellowship and gratitude and sometimes the commemoration of Reformation Day, but it may require significant planning and have limited community reach. This can be done via costume parties, movie nights, and so forth. In this category, we can place those who would observe Reformation Day and those who teach about the Protestant heritage during this time. The pros here, it offers a positive and faith-centered way to engage a local community on October 31st, because that's really what it's about. It's providing a local alternative. 
and it allows for fellowship and sometimes the commemoration of the Reformation period, which is a good church history lesson, right? It educates about the Reformation and what occurred in the Protestant tradition. The cons. It requires organization and hosting alternate events, which can be challenging, logistically speaking. It may have limited reach compared to traditional Halloween activities. And it could be seen as equally elevating men as Catholicism does by being so focused on the Reformation or even being contrary to the Reformation ideals by recognizing the Reformation in that way. Position three, redeeming or taking back the holiday. Redeeming the holiday involves participating in Halloween with a different perspective, often using it as a platform for faith sharing and acts of kindness. This approach may require you know, planning and outreach efforts, but it offers a potential for positive impact for the gospel. In this category, I'd place, you know, trunk or treats, uh, tractor treating, kind of made that one up. You know, you go out and you do trick or treating, but you give out tracks at the same time or participating simply by passing out candy from your, from your own doorstep and evangelizing. In this category, we can place those who hold to, um, you know, the, the fighting for, or the bringing back or the emphasizing the Christian roots of the holiday. And the pros of this are um, it provides an opportunity to engage with the community and share one's faith. It allows one to demonstrate acts of kindness and outreach during Halloween celebrations. The cons is that it requires careful planning and consideration of how to you know, effectively use Halloween as a platform for the gospel. Um, some individuals may not be receptive to literature on this day. Um, and in addition to this, would be specifically related to the Christian roots and discerning how to properly observe All Saints Day in a Protestant fashion. So in that category are those people that want to emphasize the Christian roots and figure out how to do All Saints Day properly, you know, like within a Protestant um, tradition. Uh, position number four I have as cautious participation. You know, cautious participation allows for children to engage in Halloween activities while maintaining boundaries aligned with Christian values. This approach is really just like, just go do the things. Uh, it enables families to participate in community events, but necessitates, you know, careful costume and activity choices. You know, you have to make sure you go to the right neighborhoods, that you pick out the right costumes, that you're not going somewhere where, um, you know, there is potentially compromising. And really this could kind of fall into, you know, go to an alternate celebration kind of route. Um, and the pros with this is that it permits children to participate in Halloween activities while setting boundaries aligned with Christian values it allows families to engage in neighborhood interactions and community events. The cons is that it requires careful selection of costumes and activities to ensure that they align with Christian principles. But another con is that it may still expose children to elements contrary to the faith, even with caution. The last one I have is observing cultural Halloween with Reformation Day. That is observing uh, cultural Halloween as Reformation Day, combining the two observances, celebrating Halloween while emphasizing the significance of the Reformation Day. This approach encourages community engagement, but it requires careful integration to make it meaningful. So the pros would be that it blends the cultural celebration with the commemoration of the, the Protestant heritage and engages the community while emphasizing a significant historical event. The cons, it requires you know, thoughtful integration of the two observances uh, to maintain their, their distinct meanings. But in practice, Reformation Day will be overclouded by the cultural observance. It's, it's hard to make that Reformation Day. So those are my general like five positions that I think are viable. They, they're kind of more broad than like the list I gave in the last section. Before I give you my position, I want to talk briefly about Romans 14 and the principles outlined in Romans 14, which provide guidance for Christians grappling with this issue and how they address other believers. Basically, you have to make sure 
that you acknowledge diverse beliefs because at the heart of Romans 14 is an exhortation for Christians to receive one another without passing judgment on these types of disputable matters. In the context of Halloween, this means acknowledging that fellow believers may hold these varying viewpoints on the appropriateness of celebrating the holiday. And it's essential to respect these differences to foster unity within the church, especially if the heart of one's um, you know, position is to do that outreach on Halloween that you may choose to abstain for or vice versa. Um, just see the strengths and weaknesses in both sides. If you have someone who abstains, you know, give them praise for their convictions and staying on their convictions. If you see someone who's doing evangelism, you know, give them praise, you know, try to maintain the unity um, as best as you can, despite holding strong convictions, you know, to the contrary. Because at the end of the day, while this is a heated discussion, it can be had, you know, with, with love, kindness, and exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit um, in order to honor Christ. So basically, whenever we're considering this subject, you want to make sure that you're engaging in thoughtful reflection, prayer, and consideration um, as you go through Romans 14. So you want to make sure that you um, evaluate your personal convictions. You know, does participating in Halloween align with your understanding of scriptural principles, especially those, you know, discussed in these previous sections and, and the roots of Halloween? Um, and engage in sincere prayer and biblical study and, and work through it and make sure that you are firm in your position um, before moving forward. Also, don't neglect your church. The application of Romans 14 is not just about individuals, but about one's community and church context. Some churches or denominations may provide specific guidance or teachings regarding Halloween, if the day is even acknowledged at all. Um, so therefore, you should really just consider engaging in open dialogue with you know your leaders and your elders and fellow congregants in order to understand that communal perspective. And then you need to consider age and family dynamics. You know, how are you bestowing um, things into your children, your upbringing? How are you stewarding your children? And you need to balance those personal convictions with family dynamics and with wisdom and discernment. You can also consider from a missional or outreach perspective. You know, you may see it as a great opportunity to go share the gospel, or you may see it as an unnecessary means of participating. Um, but have respect for conscience. You know, Romans 14 underscores the importance of respecting the conscience of others. Those who choose to abstain from Halloween should not judge or look down on those who participate and vice versa. It goes both ways. Maintaining an attitude of respect and understanding is essential for preserving unity within the faith community. Um, if, if Paul can write this letter to Jews and Gentiles on things like the Sabbath and things like the Passover, then we can figure it out on Halloween. We can do it right. And the last factor is, you know, the cultural and regional variations. Um, really, Halloween in America is very different than Halloween in different cultures. And so that's something worth considering if you're talking outside of just our national, um, you know, scope. In conclusion, Romans 14 gives us a framework to help us, you know, make a decision, study through it, pray through it, talk with others, you know, have meaningful back and forth with others. You can even have healthy debates, just do it in love and kindness. I had plenty of conversations during my prepping for these episodes to prep me for this. And so, it is essential that we approach this discussion with humility, respect, and an understanding where people are coming from, and then pray for them as they, you know, work through it and pray for them as they approach it, um, as they're actually going through the day. So we can make informed decisions and we can all ensure that we are trying to glorify Christ in these decisions. So let's get into my summary and my conclusions on the subject with all this in mind. All right. First and foremost, I remain unconvinced that Halloween is linked to Samhain, given the lack of historical evidence for Samhain at large, and of course the evidence for the development of Halloween 
before the alleged Irish observance. We, we talked about the, the development of the cult of the saints I, that developed before Samhain's historical record, before the connection between the Irish. I, I remain unconvinced that it's connected to Samhain. Or put another way, I don't believe that Halloween is pagan in so much as it's related to Samhain. Yet, Halloween and All Saints Day, by all accounts, is the result of a close affiliation with the cults of the dead and has many similarities with the pagan pantheon and practices regarding patron-client relationships and shrines, indicating clear pagan roots. In this way, I agree with the reformers in saying that Halloween does indeed have pagan roots on this religious level of the discussion. Further, the holiday is built upon the cult of the saints, and its rejection, exemplified by Christians over the centuries, leaves it as a Catholic holiday uh, built on doctrines rejected historically by Protestants. Thus, at its roots, you know, pagan or not, it is still generally incompatible with Protestants given why, when, and how the holiday was formed. And so while some Protestants have modified it in order to take it back um, as a Christian holiday, it's impossible to say that they are actually practicing the day as it was formulated. I have a high respect for the saints. I love reading the doctors of the church. However, I do not find that you can take this holiday back and say that you're taking it back while stripping it of all these elements that made it what it was. So it's impossible to say that you're actually practicing the day as it was formulated. Instead, you could say that you're practicing a different version, uh, a more biblical or more reformed, reformed Halloween, reformed All Saints Day. So that's just from that perspective. Now, Reformation Day, in terms of Reformation Day, which I know a lot of people who listen to the show practice, um, it signifies kind of a new course, right? The opposite direction, and it's observed as a Protestant commemoration in various countries. Um, and while, while it has been tempting for me to replace Halloween with Reformation Day, I still find it difficult to do because the only reason why I would do it would be to replace Halloween, and I don't see a need for that. I see Halloween the same way I see like St. Patrick's Day. There's a casual acknowledgement and appreciation of what occurred, but I don't really go beyond that. So there's not a reason for that, that, that new establishment of a Christian holiday, right? And I say this um, also because there's kind of a level of irony that the reformers likely would have rejected a Reformation Day type celebration. Um, I don't think that they would hold to such an observation. And so I find it kind of too ironic to actually do. Now, when we're speaking about the culture elements stripped of all these religious aspects, the modern adaptions of Halloween are young cultural evolutions, right? We talked about that the last 500 years minimally. Their, their roots kind of debated. But the basic elements, right, that make up these traditions of you know dressing up and collecting candy, they're not inherently wrong. We have to all admit that they're not inherently wrong. And if there is no negative religious significance attached to it, then there seems to be no problem so long as the Christian does not violate biblical principles and uses wisdom in the stewardship of their children. Um, basically, th there's no reason to suggest that individuals are obligated to adopt the cultural evolution of the observance that is more gore and horror as time goes on, right? In the same way that I'm not obligated to adopt the more cultural elements and commercialized holidays that are Christian in the roots, such as Christmas and Easter. Now, that all said, the cultural observance... From, from everything I've gathered, is so closely linked with elements that are contrary to the Christian worldview that it becomes very difficult for me to justify partaking. There is no doubt when you look at local shops, festivals, parades, upcoming films, commercials, etc., what the focus of Halloween is in this culture. And you can blame it on capitalism, you can blame it on sensationalism, you can blame it on all those 
factors, but the point remains that that is what it is tied to, that is what people see when they think of Halloween, and that is something worth considering seriously. Because I have seen many times where Christians have created alternatives to Halloween, but they're also critiqued by outsiders for compromise on Christian values in order to participate in the day. Now, while the quote-unquote games of the day are not inherently wrong, the games cannot be detached from their context, nor can one deny that the only reason why these games are being played on that day is because that is what the culture is doing. So for the last nine years, my family and I have not participated in Halloween or any modification of it. Um, that includes Reformation Day. We just haven't. Um, and after having many great conversations with individuals on the spectrum, I found myself just landing back to my original position. I remember being asked about, you know, do you celebrate Halloween a couple times? And I always quit back with no, because I'm neither pagan nor papist. And I want you to hear me that if you celebrate, I'm not saying that as an indictment against you. I'm saying that's just my mentality on the whole situation. If I take the three broad categories of paganism, Catholicism, and, you know, grotesque secularism, I have reasons to not participate in every single one of those categories. I don't participate in the Catholic holiday because I'm not Catholic. I'm a Protestant. I don't participate in the pagan elements because I'm a Christian. I don't participate in the secular gruesome stuff because I don't believe that they match up with my worldview. My primary thrust overall is that I'm not Catholic. That's really where I stand on it because knowing the history of where All Saints Day came from, I'm just like, I don't care about this day. Now, here's an important caveat that I, I want to throw in here because a lot of people misunderstand uh, the position of abstaining and kind of charge it with, well, you're just fearful or, you know, you think that pagans own the day. My, my position is not that I believe that Catholics are pagans on the day and I'm abandoning it, but rather I just treat the day like any other day. I don't give this quote unquote holy day any significance. It's just another day on my calendar. In fact, last year things passed by and I didn't even realize that Halloween had passed by because, you know, you, whenever you have kids, the days just kind of blur together. But ultimately, from my perspective, trying to find a way to observe the day in some other way than it already is being observed is firstly acknowledging that it's something worthy of time and effort. And secondly, a matter of mere cultural pressure. And I can kind of tie this in with Cinco de Mayo. You know, where I live, Cinco de Mayo is a big thing. Uh, and it's a big thing about the heritage of my city. And, but the only reason why I would go is because I either felt like it was worth the time and effort to go because it was significant enough to go or because the cultural pressure made me feel like I should go. But in either case, I just don't. It's just another day that passes on the calendar because neither of those things are true for me. The same thing goes for Halloween. Halloween for me it's just not worth the time or effort to even bother trying to think of alternatives. In other words, Halloween is just not significant enough for me to care about. Like, and so it's not me saying like pagans and Catholics take over the day. It's saying that like y'all's day means nothing. That's, that's how I perceive of it. Um, and I'll be honest, there is a lot of cultural pressure, especially when you have kids to, to do it. My daughter will come home on occasion, you know, with her friends are prepping for Halloween or something. And they'll we'll have a conversation about why we don't do it and she understands and we move on but really the only time that i start thinking about well should i rethink my position it's about that cultural pressure you know is my kid missing out on something fun so generally people look at those who abstain you know as dreadfully fearful of the day yet most i've met are kind of like me it's just another day on the calendar like any other religious holiday we don't celebrate muslim holidays we don't sell celebrate jewish holidays we don't i don't celebrate cinco de mayo it just name some and you could say, you know, sure, it's very popular. It's observed by a lot of folk. But if we were in a Muslim-dominated country, I wouldn't go observe the most popular Muslim holiday of the year. You know, like, that that's not a factor for me. And some people see that as valid reasoning. Some people don't because of the, the popularity and the prominence thing. But that, that's just the way I view it. 
So whenever I look at my life and my kid's life, you know, we have candy and costumes all the time. So there's little reason to really consider the day worthy of the hassle when it comes to it each year. As we know, those costumes are expensive and the candy is expensive. It's commercialization. But that whole idea that, you know, we have candy and costumes all the time, you can say the same thing about outreach. We have outreach events and festivities all the time year round. So I'm not sure that it's necessarily a good argument to say, well, we can make sure that we do that on Halloween. It is true that you'll reach a good amount of people that are out and about, but you could do that at any event at any time. So the question is why in Halloween? And I think if we're all really honest, it's because people want to participate in Halloween and that's a good way to do it while incorporating your faith, right? There's also something to be said about living in a suburb. If you live in a neighborhood and you're sitting at your door and someone rings your doorbell like every couple of minutes to get candy and you have the opportunity to hand out a tract, you're in a really interesting position. Take advantage of it. Like I, I can't really see a downside to that. I'm not sure that people who abstain generally find something wrong with that. It's a good opportunity. It's the same thing as if a Jehovah's Witness came on your door. Of course, you're going to take a second to like, hey, you know, you should know the deity of Christ, man. That's important. So I think that that's an interesting opportunity without necessarily having to go out and be in that position uh, and all the different uh, dynamics that come with that. And to be honest, I'm not in that position. I live on land where my door is unreachable, which is kind of sad because I don't get the Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons. Um, I, on occasion, I wish I do. But perhaps if I lived in a neighborhood, I would be more inclined to at least pass out tracks and candy. I can't really say because I'm not in that situation, but I see the value in that. Um, but what I do think that everyone needs to come to grips with is that regardless of how you are participating in the modern celebration, the general populace, their perception is that it's that it's Samhain, it's wicked, or it's Catholic. And so while you may be eating meat from outside of a pagan temple, if you're in that temple, it will be assumed that you're eating sacrificed meat as a pagan, right? Wait a minute, Nick. What, what about Christmas and Easter, right? People argue that it's pagan or Catholic. Sure. But fundamentally, what Halloween versus Easter and Christmas boil down to is completely different. The latter, Easter and Christmas boil down to Christ, nativity, and the resurrection. So when a pagan looks at you and scoffs that you're celebrating a pagan holiday around Christmas, which it's not pagan, spoiler alert, um, they are laughing at you because according to them, you think you're observing Christ's nativity, but you're actually celebrating a pagan holiday. And the same goes for Easter, right? Happy Ishtar. They think that they're celebrating the resurrection, but it's really Ishtar, which is not spoiler alert. But on the other hand, when a pagan looks at a Christian celebrating Halloween, there is not that fundamental link to Christ and his work still. So I think this is a crucial difference, especially when we consider our witness as Christians. So I would argue that here, abstaining could be superior, if nothing else, then ironically, for witness. There's one more point to consider, and it's this. If the topic is convoluted, which it is, and if the topic is so questionable, which it is, and if there are no real, significant, or weighty reasons to participate, it would seem more wise to abstain. It's kind of that better safe than sorry thing. I remember we were talking about, you know, would you use um, heretics literature or music or something like that in your church service? And you can answer yes, and you can give reasons for it. You can say, well, because, you know, there's truth in it. You can find the truth in it. You can redeem it, all this other stuff. But it always boils down to, is it worth it to play with it, even if it's questionable, Right. And so that may not be a valid argument, but whenever I weigh the reasons for or against observing, there are more reasons to abstain almost every single time. Every time that I, I stack this you know, topic up in my head, 
The only reason I could think of to participate is to have fun with my kids, which I think is the key point for a lot of parents. But still, for me, that isn't enough. I mean, I, I do things with my kids all the time. They get candy far too much. They have a basket downstairs. They don't need more candy. They have costumes already. And so whenever I weigh that in conjunction with that pressure to have fun with my kids and let them go out and do this cultural thing, it's just not enough. The day has enough baggage that there appears to be little, if any, benefit to observing. That's where I boil everything down. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.23, everything is lawful, but not everything is beneficial. But nonetheless, for all of you who don't abstain, in that same text, Paul says, and everything you do, do it for the glory of the Lord, and that my conscience cannot bind your liberty. And so that's my position. And no matter what we do, we need to think about how we're conducting ourselves and stewarding our children and being a witness for Christ, whether it's through abstaining or whether it's through observing. If you are one of the abstainers that just hammers on every single person that observes it based off of one of the positions above, you may need us to sit back and think about your approach because there's a lot of approaches that are not glorifying to God. You can disagree on this and you can do it well. And that goes for the other side. The other side does the same thing to those of us who abstain. Think of us as, you know, these uptight legalists or, you know, fearful. And so this is a long way of saying have charity on both sides, no matter which position you take. Love the Lord, love your brothers and sisters in the faith. And if you disagree with me on this position, I pray that I came across as respectful, that you can follow my position without it coming across as insulting. I didn't mean it to. This is one of those things where we're going to have strong positions, right? And so I may say something here and there that may be like, whoa, hey, man, why'd you have to take that shot? I, If I did, I didn't mean to. But that wraps up this particular um, saga on Halloween. I probably won't be speaking about this topic ever again because I just do not care. And I really mean that. That's one of the reasons why I haven't had an episode on it. I care far more about Christmas and Easter than I do Halloween because Halloween to me is just another day on the calendar that I do not observe. Um, so you guys have a wonderful, wonderful weekend. And next week, we're going to continue our Reformation series on myths of the Reformation. We're going to go through some myths of the Reformation and counter them. God bless you all and have a wonderful, wonderful weekend.